Hey, 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 film fans, what's up? Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It is the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined by the movie maestro, Mike Nichols. Uh, Mike, hope everyone out there listening had a, a wonderful Thanksgiving and is enjoying the holiday season so far. Uh, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. Yeah, November was just a busy month for everyone. We didn't get to record in November, but I don't know if anyone listening also had a crazy November, but there was so much going on. Uh, work, work stuff, uh, just family gatherings, uh, you know, Thanksgiving events to attend to people in town like uh, yeah movies to see like weirdly enough i got to watch stuff but we didn't ever get to record to talk about it. we were both just really busy yeah i mean we, that can be the case at times where like we might not record for a little bit but we're definitely it's not like yeah. we're not watching things like we're always you know trying to go to the theater checking out stuff on streaming uh kind of catching up on movies that have come out so uh just know film fans that even if we aren't talking to you we are still putting in the work to deliver this podcast um and today on this episode we're going to kind of do the same thing that we did last time where mike and i sort of bounce back and forth rapid fire style kind of share all the different things that we've been watching um over the last few weeks here because there's a lot there's a lot of movies um obviously the holiday season is known for uh Mm -hmm. big releases coming out we've got a few coming still um and there's obviously some big ones planned for 2024 as well but uh lots to get to to today's show mike so what do you say we get after it let's do it buddy all right, cool. Well, I'll toss it to you first. Uh, like I said, we've, we've sort of discussed this um, because we wanted to see like if there's anything that we've both seen that we can review. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there is one movie, Mike, that we have both seen. So why don't we start there? Not to dictate your choices here, but I figure, you know, we'll start one off here where we've both seen. And uh, it's the continuation of what uh, a, a film series that we've been tracking for a while now. Yes, uh, A Haunting in Venice uh, is the latest uh, from Kenneth Branagh, um, based on the Agatha Christie character Poirot and his mysteries. Um, that's This is one that's set in Venice, where Poirot is investigating um, what seems like it could be an accidental death, but is really something more. And this one's the spookiest one. This is definitely like the most Halloween-y where they're, uh, of the Poirot films that Branagh has done. Um, again, has a stellar cast, a lot of people who were in Belfast with Rana. Um, and, uh, you know, I have to say, like, I've enjoyed Kent Rana's Poro series. Um, it, for me, is still never going to be as enjoyable as David Suchet's Poro. Uh, but I think Kent Rana is a fine actor, fine director, uh, probably one of my personal favorites. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, this, this is fine. It's fun to have on. It's fun to watch, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's not much more to it. Uh, it's just like a, a good little mystery that is ultimately probably forgettable, though. Um, unlike David Suchet. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I mean, I... I... I don't know if I would say it's forgettable. You know, I, I kind of really enjoyed watching it, watched it with my wife. It, it did definitely capture those spooky vibes that you're looking for around the Halloween season. Um, you know, we we reviewed both movies on this pod. Um, actually, I think I said before, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, when we went and saw that movie, me and the popcorn correspondent way back when it came out, that's kind of the movie before we were watching where we decided that we were going to start the second day film podcast. So uh, kind of has a little bit of a special spot there, but death on the Nile is a movie that you and me both reviewed came out a couple of years ago. And I think we both liked that quite a bit. I thought that was better than murder on the Orient express. I, I found that mm-hmm. one to be more engaging. I liked that one quite a bit. Um, I think it was in my top 10 of movies for that year, but 
I like Perot. You know, I haven't seen the Suchet one that you've seen, so I don't have that same sort of attachment. But I think Kenneth Branagh has embodied the character well. I think if you look at Death on the Nile, I think one of the things I liked a lot was sort of how it sort of broke down the legend and the myth of Hercule Perot and sort of got to the bare bones of who he is as a person. And at the start of this movie, we kind of see sort of like a broken former self of Perot. You know, he's kind of retired. He's kind of retreated to the background of his career and his life. And throughout the course of this film, we see him sort of you know, put his skepticism to the side, put certain things, uh, grievances or regrets that he has to the side and sort of move forward as sort of like a rejuvenated detective who's back to get on the case and take new cases. So throughout the three films, I kind of like how we've seen like an arc of Hercule Perot um, as a character. Um, and this one, yeah, real creepy. You know, I went to Italy for my honeymoon. So uh, including to Venice. So to kind of mm. s- transported, <clears throat> excuse me, back to Venice and sort of this, eerie with like the masks and the sort of Halloween setting and the old creepy castle and the sort of lantern lit streets and corridors. Um, I know from being in Venice, like it does have a very creepy vibe at night because it's just like all these little different bridges and, and causeways and plazas and little streets that are actually yeah. what we would call an alley because <laughs> they're about as big as enough to get a bike through. So uh, I think the setting itself was a great place to put this film and sort yeah. of combine. It sort of is like you're right, a, a, an amalgamation of horror, but also kind of like the, uh, the whodunit style. And I think those two things together worked pretty well. Yeah, I do. And I do think, um, you know, it was a beautiful film, like cinematography, like just the setting in Venice, like it was it was gorgeous to look at. And I, I will also give it credit for having a good number of jump scares in it. Like they 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 got me a couple times. I was like, whoa, like um, and yeah, excellent cast. Uh, overall, it is an enjoyable film. Uh, I don't know. For some reason, it just didn't it, it didn't really last with me. Um, so overall, I give it a, I give it a B, B plus probably. Yeah. I didn't think the central mystery was as interesting as maybe death on the Nile or I don't know, because it was, it it was sort of bouncing back and forth between like, okay, is there actually something supernatural going on here? Or is this just an elaborate con and a ruse that he has to figure out? And it did keep you on your toes a little bit in terms of the audience in that way, where I wasn't quite sure which way it was actually going to lean into Mm -hmm. like, okay, wait, are they actually going to go supernatural here? Cause it's kind of seeming like it. But uh, um, so in, in that way, I, I wouldn't say it was the most predictable. Like, I think I knew what was going to come more in like death on the Nile and murder on the Orient express than I did in this one. Um, so I appreciate it for that. But um, also I like that Tina Fey is kind of now becoming the mystery uh, woman. Like, cause she's got uh, only murders in the building and now she's in a borrow movie. I love, like, I love the idea of this could be Tina Fey's new genre. <laughs> She's Fantastic. moved from she's moved from comedy to horror genres like yeah. it's the classic her, 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 movie. to mystery to mystery. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, I love her. So, so good on her. Uh, Haunting in Venice. I gave a seven. So, right. you know, yeah. one of a movie fair. that yeah, a movie that was worth watching. I think it was fun to watch during the uh, Halloween season. But, uh, you know, uh, not something that is going to stand the test of time, like you said. But if you're looking for kind of to capture those vibes, I think this movie really did capture the, the creepy vibes pretty well. So check out A Haunting in Venice. Um, all right. I'll keep going here, Mike. Uh, yeah. a, a film that I saw a, a couple weeks ago. Um, it's called Dumb Money 
I don't know if you remember oh. this film, but uh, mm. it was directed by Craig uh, Craig Gillespie, and it stars Paul Dano, Pete Davidson, Vincent D'Onofrio, America Ferreira, Nick Offerman, Anthony Ramos, Sebastian Stan, Shailene Woodley, and Seth Rogen. Um, this chronicles the GameStop short squeeze uh, from January 2021, kind of one of those if you remember, Mike, I mean, this is sort of like during the pandemic, you know, 2021, not at the height of it, but during a very big part of it. And this is one of those weird things that I remember happening. You know, everyone was chronically yeah, yeah, online. Yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. was chronically online during the pandemic because we didn't have anything else to do. We had to stay at home a lot of times. Things were being shut down. And this was one of those weird things that I remember started happening on Twitter where everyone was kind of like banding together to try and take out the big guys by sort of short side squeezing the GameStop stocks. And I was surprised that they really like made a movie about this so soon after it had Mm. already happened. I was like, okay, is this actually going to like, this was a hilarious thing that happened in real life, but is it going to make a good movie? And I give a lot of credit to the people who made this movie because they do it in a very engaging, fun way that is easy to digest because let's face it. When you're talking about stocks, when you're talking about shares of stuff, when you're talking about short squeezing and all this financial jargon, I think for the for the normal person, it can get a little bit confusing and kind of go over your head. What this movie does well is it sort of breaks it down and it literally explains things to you like on screen. If a character yeah. pops up on screen, it's their name and then it says their net worth. And how much they're worth. So on one side, you have these guys who are making billions and billions of dollars as part of these collectives, bailing each other out. And then the guy who actually perpetuated the GameStop thing, they show his net worth and it's negative. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a classic, you know, David versus Goliath story, the little guys versus the big guys. Um, but it, but I think what this movie does better than anything is it just sort of breaks things down in a very digestible way for anybody to understand. And it does it in an entertaining way um, to the point where a story that could be kind of boring is actually really exciting to watch unfold and to see the, 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 the super rich people just played by like Seth Rogen and Nick Offerman to start just kind of losing their shit because they've made a bad investment or they've made a bad choice or they're not taking the little guys seriously. Um, it just unfolds in a really humorous, fun manner. Um, mm. And for that reason, dumb money became like one of the kind of a sneaky hit and, kind of one of those movies that i popped on didn't expecting much that i came out and i was like whoa this is actually awesome but what do you remember about this happening uh i mean i do remember watching this happening i uh champ do you remember the the commission for the stock trading website that everyone was using uh for this do you remember the name of that uh robin hood robin oh champ you bring this up every podcast jeez <laughs> no um so that is actually the relation i had to it because it was trending and like robin hood like writers and creatives and like website like they were all getting like like people were reaching out and they're like, um, so we're about the character and medieval legend Robin Hood. We are not associated like, but that kept happening. Like it was like it was you would see a lot of tweets from like, you know, Robin Hood charity funds or like the Robin Hood tours and not again. Like they were like, we are not associated with like because people were like tweeting at them and tagging them. It was wild. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a movie I really wanted to see. I mean, it's got a great cast, got Paul Dono. Uh, Vincent Nafrio, America Ferreira, Nick Offerman, uh, Sebastian. So, yeah, I really do want to see this one. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm excited to see that they did like basically they they made the big short uh, about um, it's similar to that the GameStop thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. 
And and in the big short, the reason I think that movie worked is because it did a lot of the same things that I'm talking about, where if there's like a term that they're using on screen, they actually explain it to you on screen. Right. Because you're dealing with like crazy stuff that's going to go over people's head. Uh, That movie did a good job breaking things down and make it making it feel sort of like a crowd pleaser. And there's a lot. of Yeah. Sorry. Is it accurate, though? Like, I mean, if you watch it, are you like, well, this is actually what happened and this is explaining it accurately or is it is it like creating a drama that goes beyond like the real the real story. I think what it's showing is accurate. I think it's leaving some things out. Um there just so it, it's better. Um you know, okay. but it's but it's a crowd-pleasing dramatization of the events, I would say. Like it okay. it gives you the kind of the the gist of what's going on. I think they probably skewed it a little bit so it makes the little guys look better so that way it's more of a crowd pleaser so that way it's going to relate to people more you know i kept thinking of the social network when i was watching this movie just in a way where there's a lot of this corporate bashing heads into each other and like organizations getting involved and just seeing how something unfolds so quickly and is built um that's kind of what the movie uh did in a very real and authentic way and you know even if even if it's only telling part of the story i still think it was uh an entertaining way to to get involved with it and uh it does this sort of plot device where it kind of takes like these very different people from all sorts of different walks of life. And they sort of represent all the hundreds of thousands of people who got involved with this. Um, so it's like, you kind of are getting like America Ferrera plays a person. And uh, um, you know, obviously Paul Dano is the, is the ringleader. America um, Ferrera plays a person. She plays like a, she plays like a, uh, she plays a nurse. She plays a nurse from somewhere. And then there's a college student that gets involved. And there's a a guy from Detroit where he's just kind of like down on his luck and he takes a shot on something. So it just kind of represents all the different people that sort of got involved with this. And we're all running with Paul Dano's character, who was basically just an online streamer. So it does represent how uh, with Twitter and Twitch and streaming and technology now, how information can travel so fast. How, yeah. how movements like this can come out of nowhere. The mm-hmm. movie kind of does a good job touching on that and how that in a modern way is impacting the the way that people have to think about stocks and really anything. Um, so it's a, it's a good warning in that sense, but it's just a modern movie that is entertaining that um, really deals with some contemporary issues. And I think that they made it a lot better than it could have been. So um, mm-hmm. I ended up giving Dumb Money a 8.5 out of 10. It was honestly the most surprising movie that I've seen so far this year, and it is in my top five. So I would highly cool. recommend checking it out. That's great. Well, this next one is something that is definitely in my top five of favorite things I've seen this year. Uh, and this is, we're actually moving to television. Um, this is The Fall of the House of Usher miniseries uh, by Mike Flanagan. Uh, it was released on Netflix. Uh, I know we're kind of like going back to like Halloween time, um, but man, this was just so good. And I, I really wanted to talk about it. Uh, we didn't get a chance to or November. So we're talking about it now. But um, yeah, as everyone who's kind of following Mike Flanagan knows, he does really good horror and he weaves in really powerful, like time, timeless themes. And and uh, this is this is basically his masterpiece of of Edgar Allan Poe uh, material. So he basically takes a lot of uh, different Poe stories, like maybe like The Raven or uh, Casco Monteiro. Uh, uh, the mask, red, the red ball, or blah, blah, blah. well, I can't talk. Sorry, the the red mask of the death ball. I, I don't remember. Oh my gosh, why can't I? Mask of the red death. That's what it's called. Thank you. Um, 
But uh, he weaves them all into this larger story of the fall of the House of Usher. And he ad he's adapting all of those Poe works into one kind of very modern Poe-like po like, po -like story. It's incredible. Um, and he's using a lot of the same cast that he's used in his other projects, like uh, Midnight Mass, which I also really loved, and The Midnight Club, which I haven't seen, but now I really want to go see it because I've seen two Mike Flanagan things, and I'm like, man, I love what this guy does. I'm not even a horror person, but I I love I love his works right now, at least the two things I've seen from him. So I won't spoil it uh, for you, Champs. I know you're still watching it, and you, you're enjoying it so far. But basically, if you like Edgar Allan Poe, you're going to watch, like, a lot of Poe stories as modern adaptations when it really does adapt it well to like the modern issues of greed and, you know, pain and family like, cruelty. Like it's, it does a really good job um, taking those main themes that Poe would write about in the context of his world and be like, okay, what, what does a cruel family look like in our world? Or what does a greedy company look like a greedy business person look like in this, like, it's just it's a it's an amazing literary adaptation and I have a lot of respect for it. I give it an A. Yeah, I'm a little behind on the Mike Flanagan shows. Um I've I've seen Haunting of Hill House and I'm watching The Haunting of Bly Manor right now. I have not seen Midnight Mass or Midnight Club, but um I mean I, I love his style. Like I'm yeah. as I dug more in, I'm like it's horror, yeah, it's creepy, but it's like it's smart, right? Like the way yeah. that the story tells and, and intermix is different time periods to help enhance the story. And like he'll do a flashback that really specifically enhances like one character, or he'll spend a whole episode examining one character and how that fits into the bigger arc of the whole series. And I just think that attention to detail, um, dealing with real themes real life themes like you're just talking about and sort of molding that into a horror background i think is a really smart way to go about it because let's face it a lot of horror can be really stupid and yeah. mike flanagan is like it's like he's making a concerted effort to take the horror genre and enhance it and elevate it in a smart way and yeah. i think that he's doing a great job with that you know i, I love the the overall vibe and mood and you know, Haunting of Hill House has all the ghosts in the background like that you can look for. And while the show is going on, uh, Haunting of Bly Manor has some of that stuff as well. And, you know, I haven't seen this one, but I can just tell by early indications of what kind of vibe it is. Uh, it's very much in line with that Mike Flanagan style where it's sort of like kind of dim colors, faded pastels, like everything is kind of moody. Um, and you combine that with, you know, actors that he's obviously very comfortable with using in multiple shows. Oh, yeah. Uh, and smart writing to enhance the horror genre. And I can see why this guy uh, has sort of developed a niche for himself in this area. And, uh, you know, the deal with Netflix will obviously help things get traction. But, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying putting him on. And along with guys like David Eggers uh, or Robert Eggers, sorry, he's the guy who directed like The Lighthouse, The Witch. And then Ari Aster, who's doing stuff like Hereditary and Midsummer. I do think there's some really good actors or directors that are really giving us more in the horror genre. So uh, mm. I'm excited about the future of it. And um, I, I really like seeing people take this sort of approach to the genre because, you know, you, even you, like you say, you're not a big horror guy, but this sort of approach is getting you more interested. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, so more, more Mike Flanagan or more people doing Mike Flanagan style things. 
All right. Well, I'll stick with the horror, I guess, for now. Um, it, it's a movie that I decided to pop on. Uh, it, you, can you tell that we meant to record uh, in, in, in a little bit closer? To the holidays? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're pushing on on the holidays here, and we're yeah. uh, we're we're talking about all the scary stuff. But hey, what are you gonna do? Yeah. Life happens. In, you know? in February, we're gonna have a bunch of Christmas movies to review. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Candy Cane Lane, starring Eddie Murphy, coming March fourth. We'll, we'll review it then. Uh, but uh, Five Nights at Freddy's is the movie i went mm. uh, i saw it was on peacock decided to pop it on based on a video game series that i'm not familiar with at all i've never played any of these games uh but it was uh that that was created by uh scott cawthorn a video game series but uh, basically it's about this uh pizzeria um that is sort of haunted by big animatronics it's basically like a chuck e cheese ripoff um <laughs> he's called uh freddy phase bear is the main thing. So if you've ever been to a Chuck E. Cheese back in the day, you know how they have the, the big animatronics that sing on stage and, you know, I, play their musical instruments. I have a confession. Yeah. I have never been, I've never been to a Chuck E. Cheese in my life. You must've been a neglected child, Mike, if you never went to a Chuck E. Cheese, I feel bad for you. Um, I was, I was homeschooled. So I <laughs> have something to do with it. Well, regardless, you know what I'm, you know what I'm driving at here. The vibe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So these guys are basically a rip off of that. But what happens in the movie is that Josh Hutcherson, hey, haven't seen that guy in a while. Uh, he stars in this movie and he takes a security guard job because he's kind of down on his luck at this abandoned family entertainment center. And the animatronic mascots are possessed by. Uh, well, I won't say what they're possessed by, but they aren't normal. We'll just say that. So he has to kind of deal with this. Uh, his daughter's involved. Uh, there's a police officer uh, lady who's played by. Um, Elizabeth Lale and she's involved in this, but they all have sort of have a backstory of how they twist together. I kind of like the way that this movie started, Mike, like I wasn't expecting much. I think this is just going to be kind of like a dumb, those dumb horror movies that we were just talking about. It actually starts out better than I thought because uh, Josh Hutcherson kind of has like this uh, tragic past that he's dealing mm. with. And he does this thing with like sleep dreaming where he's like trying to go back to this moment and look for clues um, about what happened to his brother. So there's kind of like this, some depth to this character at the start, instead of just like a weird setup. Um, and through his experiences in this haunted entertainment center, he kind of has to come to terms with his past. So I like the idea of that. Unfortunately, the second half of this movie, it really starts to fall off the rails. Um, things just get a little bit crazy. They get way too zany. It sort of loses all that heart in favor of jump scares and pointless action. Uh, the acting and the motivations from Elizabeth Lull's character becomes very muddled and weird. Um, and sort of the point of the whole animatronic thing just becomes kind of like a surface level thing based on weird history and it, they all just kind of pigeonhole it in there into the story it doesn't come out in a natural way so it really just starts to feel like a run-of-the-mill jump scare horror romp uh kind of like a, a mixture of slasher and i don't know like chucky sort of um mm. so it's I was expecting a little more when it, when you gave me that start, um, but it really devolves into something that ended up not being very good. I guess it was still entertaining enough to watch, um, but Five Nights at Freddy's, you know, maybe if I had video game uh, background, I would like it yeah. a little more. But I, I had even seen people, you know, big fans of the video game say that the movie kind of missed the mark when it came to leaning into the funny, creepy, zany nature of the video game it kind of just like put all that to the side in favor of jump scares. So I, I even heard like fans of the video games being disappointed. So I ended mm -hmm. up giving it a five out of 10 promising start. 
interesting idea. The movie looks cool. It's creepy enough. The animatronics are, are well animated. In the end, too many different elements, too many different horror ideas going on that they try and shove them all into one bin and it doesn't end up being that fun. So ultimately, mm. Freddy's uh, was a little bit disappointing to me. Really have you played that, that game? Uh, I do not believe I have. Yeah. I I hadn't ever even heard of it. When I first saw the trailer, I thought it was a Freddy, like a Freddy Krueger spinoff. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's not that. It's something different. So uh, that tells you how much background knowledge I had of it. But uh, it's on Peacock if you want to check it out. Mm. Well, I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll keep on the trend of disappointing films. <laughs> um, let's talk about The Killer. Uh, this is the new David Fincher film uh, starring Michael Fassbender as the killer. Um, Michael Fassbender plays a man who is a killer and he just narrates how like you kill and all everything about precision and his cynicism has a very noir uh, feel to it. And you get to watch Michael Fassbender uh, drive different places and then get in cars and look serious as he then gets from one car to a different car and then drives somewhere else and uh, goes somewhere else and watches people and then drives somewhere else. I mean, I don't know if you can tell what the movie's plot is about, but it's basically about Michael Fassbender just driving around killing people. Is it about and killing? <laughs> it is. Uh, and it's really not as exciting as as I make all the driving around sound. Um, I'm sorry. I mean, David Fincher is obviously, you know, a incredibly talented filmmaker and has made some great movies and has a huge fan base. Um, and Michael Fassbender is also, you know, great actor. I, I don't dislike him or anything. I just, man, like this movie just kind of was slow for me. You were just like watching a dude drive around. I was like, okay, they could cut this entire scene of him just driving and just like put him at the location and let's get to something. Like, I don't really feel like I was that like, like he starts out as this very like noir, like, you know, everything is BS. You can just kill as you need to. There's life, there's death, whatever. Like, um and you're like okay like sure he's very cynical uh this guy has no problem like hurting other people and justifies it as well you know whatever we all need to eat calories or something it's like what like so yeah i, I didn't like the character very much i didn't really feel like he went through any growth or change uh we just watched him travel around this movie also did a thing that i i, I think is a trope i'm starting to dislike more and more where the main character really doesn't talk ever, but everyone talks to the main character. Like he'll just walk in. Someone will see him. He'll just sit down and they'll just start the conversation with him and just bear their soul and give him all this information. And like this happened with a really great scene with um, Tilda Swinton, who is, you know, a fantastic actress. He just comes, he sits down she immediately just starts like, ah, like, you know, well, George was always going to like, and she just like, launches into this dialogue explaining everything and then she starts telling him about himself and about her and about uh, like he hasn't said a word is the idea uh, that is... is the idea that like he's like this you know they already know about him you know like they yeah. have history like because yeah. john wick kind of does that uh like movies like um 
what's the one with uh, with Denzel Washington that just came the out? Equalizer. Is, the Equalizer does this. Um, um, you know, like Leon, a movie like Leon the Professional kind of did stuff like this, where it's this assassin that is so well known in the world that kind of everybody knows everybody, so they don't have to say anything to kind of know what each other are driving at. You know, like yeah. It's, that is a trope that happens like they're too cool to talk you know like yeah. they have to be so badass that they can just kind of sit there and scowl and they, the person talking to them knows them so well that they know what they're thinking yeah it's kind but of then, like it tries to add to their character i think yeah and I, I get that but then also what it does is it makes the characters they're coming to kill feel so less threatening or like even really like necessary to it mm-hmm. like why does this character like if they're so afraid of him and he's so epic like why do they even need to talk why doesn't he just kill them why is he letting them talk if he's so badass like why you, you know what i mean like it's just it, it doesn't feel human there's nothing i can connect to of someone who just comes sit down and the fact that he's just staring at them is suddenly so badass they need to like give him this great monologue about the meaning of life and death it's like who, that's also not like no one does that um yeah i get that it's a movie trope i i get that sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't uh i just the trope did not work for me in this film this film did not work for me i thought it was very slow um and i thought yeah it was a a waste of michael fassbender who yeah it's a great actor it was too bad well that that is too bad because david fincher is like one of my favorite directors i mean like mank Gone Girl, Social Network, Curious I, Case of Benjamin Button, Fight I love, Club. I like, love the movies you're naming. Yeah, Mank was incredible. Uh, Social Network, uh, you know, Gone Girl, Fight Club. Like, yeah, he's a good director. It's just, man, this one was just slow. Well, I was I was excited to be, when I saw that David Fincher was having a new movie. You know, I figured it would be like it's called The Killer. Like, obviously, I figured it's about an assassin, but. I would think that he would be able to kind of like stylish it up with, with his filmmaking style, you know, like he he uses a lot of like tilting of the camera and like pans and, and sort of like tracking motions, following the character, kind of like walking with him at the same speed. I haven't seen the film, so I'm not sure if he has those techniques in there. No, I mean, it's stylish would make the movie more engaging for me. I mean, it's stylish there, you know, there's a lot of that blue green, like darker, you know color palette to every shot um you know it's not a bad made movie it's just the content it just it, it just feels like it just is there a chance that you're just not interested in seeing a guy go around killing people is that it's just not like your thing or like... he really doesn't kill that but he doesn't really kill that many people it's not it's not like something like i've, I've seen the first john wick i haven't seen the others but like in that one it, you know it kills a lot of people but there's like a the character wants something there's an end goal and then there's actually a lot of things that happen in between and like i don't know i this the killer doesn't have that kind of action it doesn't have that kind of impressive like whoa he just shot 40 people in the head in like 12 seconds or something i don't know the um, world building in john wick is also incredible so that that sort of adds to it like you feel like there's a bigger world that john wick is a part of more so yeah. than just him running around like i don't i haven't seen this movie so i i couldn't tell you but uh it sounds like you were hoping for a little bit more. I mean, I'm still going to have to watch it because I yeah, love to watch it. I yeah, mean, if you're a fan it. of David Fincher, watch the movie. I guess just don't expect a lot to re- actually happen. Okay. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Did you give it a grade? I didn't. I don't remember. I give it a C plus. All right. That's The Killer. It is on Netflix, right? Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, well, from the killer to killers of the flower moon, man, we are just killing it with the segues mm. today, Mike. Uh, from yeah. horror to horror, from killer to killer, um, from dumb money to okay, that one didn't work, but we've done okay on the transitions, Mike. Uh, we have. But killers of the flower moon, you know, one of the movies that both of us have been waiting for forever. It is directed yes. by the great legendary iconic martin scorsese uh he wrote the script alongside his longtime partner eric roth it stars uh it stars a lot of people but really it's leonardo dicaprio robert de niro and lily gladstone are the three actors that are sort of carrying this movie uh it tells the story of 1920s oklahoma when a series of murders of the osage nation uh and relations to the osage nation occurred after oil was discovered on their tribal land um Really, it tells, you know, the, the tribal members had kind of become very wealthy and rich because this oil is on the land that they were basically exiled to. Um, and it shows how shocking white opportunists, white opportunists try to infiltrate their circle to gain a piece of their wealth. Um, Mike, we know Martin Scorsese, whenever he picks a film, it's going to be an, an intensely personal thing to him. It's it's a story. Uh, Martin Scorsese doesn't pick projects without having some sort of reason for wanting to do it um mm. and it, this i would say this is a little bit different lane for him than what we've seen uh recently you know we see him take these sort of shots outside the box with like kundin and age of innocence and like some some weird projects that you wouldn't think martin scorsese would take on um i would say this kind of falls into that but I'm glad that he, he chose to tell this story because it's an incident that I hadn't really heard of that. I didn't know much about um, mm -hmm. it's three and a half hours long. So him Whoa. and then, yeah, him, I mean, it should be that surprising. It's Scorsese, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, Leo Fair. and Robert De Niro are all just uh, those two are incredible on screen. I mean, they inhabit these characters I mean, unsurprisingly, they're two of the greatest actors we've ever had. And Lily Gladstone, who plays um, sort of the main uh, native girl that Leonardo DiCaprio kind of woos for his own benefit. Um, she's incredible in this as well. Super strong, really embodies the whole plight and struggle that the Osage are going through um, at, a, at an extremely high level. Mike, I thought going into this that it was going to be a brutal watch. Like, I thought there was going to be like scenes that you would have to like kind of shield your eyes uh, to not watch because I had heard that it was brutal. And it ended up being brutal, but not quite in that way. There wasn't like one or two moments where like you're watching the movie and you're like, oh, I can't watch this. It's terrible. Instead, it's just the whole three and a half hours. That's terrible. <laughs> it's mm. just, it's just <laughs> like a constant slog of, 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 depressing things happening to the Osage. It's, it's not like overtly terrible. Like what you're watching on screen doesn't seem terrible, but when you see the things and the steps that are being taken by people like Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio and their accomplices, when you see sort of the things that are working behind the scenes or the things that Lily Gladstone's character doesn't know is happening, it becomes like a three and a half hour gut punch. It's like somebody's just slowly gut punching you like this the whole time instead of one big slug because it's brutal. I mean, it's brutal the way that they, uh, the whole system, the doctors in town, the mayor, the landowners, the lawyers, like everyone's in on this plot to, to take, to try and discredit the Osage, try and take them to take their money away. It's, it's just tough to think about how something like this was allowed to go on for forever until finally the FBI, the feds sent someone because nobody in the state, nobody locally was doing anything about it, just allowing it to happen. Um, so it's kind of hard to watch, but it wasn't like the type of hard that I thought it was going to be. Mm. Yeah, this is one I really want to say. 
Um, I've heard really good things about it. Um, I've heard it is like a slog, not, not in terms of like, it's a bad movie. It's just like, it is, it just keeps breaking your heart over and over and just convicting you with like the really bad things that have been done in our country. Um, do, do you think like it ranks in, in Scorsese's like, like top 10 or top five? Like where would you kind of put it in terms of some of his other like masterpieces that he's made? It wouldn't be top five, I don't think. I think maybe like seven or eight. You know, I'd have to. Okay. Really, I'd, it'd be top ten, I think. I'd really have. You know, I took a Martin Scorsese class in college, um, where I oh, saw. That's, that's true. Where, where I watched all of his films. <laughs> where I watched all of his films, so I've seen them all. I mean, it would probably be somewhere between you know five and ten. I think um, it was. The movie is like you're just the reason it's it's so hard to watch is because Leonardo DiCaprio isn't like an inherently bad person, his character, at least he is just like a dumb person who is afraid of his uncle, who is Robert De Niro. So he's just constantly manipulated into doing stuff. Um, And you're just waiting the whole damn movie to be like, Leo, make the right choice. Leo, Mm -hmm. make the right choice. And he never freaking does. So until you could argue at the end, he does redeem himself a little bit. But it's like, bro. Just do something, make a different decision. And he just won't. So you're just watching this happen over and over again uh, to, to causing the pain and suffering of Lily Gladstone's character. And it's just, it's tough, man. It's like, come on. Mm. But the calculated way that Robert De Niro is portrayed in this, where at the start, he's sort of like this respected guy in town who's kind of witty, cracks jokes, um, you know, goes up and he has like this facade of niceness to everyone. He has money that he's willing to donate. And then as the movie goes on, the way they portray Robert De Niro, he gets darker and darker and more menacing. The lighting around him gets darker where he slowly starts to strip away this facade of niceness to the real monster that he is. And his transition mm-hmm. in the movie is pretty uh, is very well done. Obviously, it's well written. Uh, it's funny at times. They'll break the fourth wall at times and just kind of like explain to you the Osage and explain to you the history. Um, the Tulsa race thing happened not far away in Tulsa, obviously, around yeah. the same time period. So yeah. the Osage are mm-hmm. watching that, seeing that happen and thinking, oh, my God, the same thing could happen to us. So that's very timely at the top of it. I just think overall there's a reason that Martin Scorsese made this movie and they did it the right way because they worked with the tribe. They worked with the people to get their history, to get their cultures, get their traditions out there. Um, And this isn't like a movie. I've heard some criticism, you know, I'm not a native person. So, you know, if you feel slighted or offended by this movie, then that's, that's fine. That's your prerogative. I don't have that background, Um, but I, it seems like most have, felt that the movie was made in the most respectful way possible. You know, it's not being made just to drum up their horror. It's being made to educate people like us, educate people who don't know that this happened and shine a light on a piece of American history that has been in the dark for far too long. And I think mm-hmm. that was Scorsese's main reason in making this, but he wanted to make it the right way with the input from the, from the, from the tribe. And a lot of them are in this movie. So I think if you're going to go about subject matter uh, and try and make a film about this, spending three and a half hours to really dissect it from all angles and and really show an unflinching look at it was the way to do it. So I commend Martin Scorsese. I commend everyone uh, who who took this project on and is it an easy watch? No. Am I jumping to go watch it a second time? No. Am I glad I went to the theater to just be engaged with it for three and a half hours? Yes. Um, I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, going from killers of the flower moon, I can't think of a better transition into blue beetle. Uh, so, 
Uh, yeah, this is a superhero film. Uh, yeah, I don't have a transition. Uh, a Killers of the Flower Moon sounds amazing. Everyone see it. Um, but I haven't yet. Uh, but I did see Blue Beetle. So that's the next film I have to talk about. Um, yeah, Blue Beetle. Uh, it's about Amy Reyes, uh, who's a young guy played by uh, Zolo uh, Marduena. Sorry, dude, if I mess up your name. Um, but he's in Cobra Kai and he's great. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's a guy, and there's a there's an alien uh, scarab that attaches to him and makes him superhero blue beetle, and it's fun. Uh, I, this is a movie I feel like no one saw, and yeah. yet like all the reviews of it are really strong and solid. And I saw it, and I'm like, this is great. Like I've definitely been bored with superhero films for a while now, and um, this one it was just fun. Uh, you know, I love that they focused on like, uh, you know, a, a Hispanic family and they had a lot of fun, like just playing with that culture and, um, you know, like, and also celebrating it. Um, the character of the main kid was likable. I like him. Um, uh, it was a cool suit. It looked good. Uh, a lot of the special effects in superhero movies lately have felt really like just rushed or bad, like, this this seemed okay to me um and it, it just i don't know like it was such a simple straightforward superhero movie like if you've seen any superhero movie you've seen this one and yet there was something a little refreshing about that i don't know if we just had so many different superhero movies that are trying to not do like the a plus b equals c superhero formula but this one leaned into it actually like it kind of it felt like we were watching like the first Spider-Man movie or, you know, like the first Iron Man movie or something. It just was like, Oh, this, this feels like I'm watching a movie that was made in the early 2000, like early 2000s or 2010. Like it just, it just has such a classic story plot line to it. And I also like uh, where the main character is actually like dealing with real problems, like being poor getting out of college, not having enough like money or like feeling like he's not going to get hired. Like there are real problems that people have in life. And uh, oftentimes you, you don't see characters really having the consequences of that, but with this, you feel it in this kid and his family. Um, yeah. It is a really, it's a family superhero film. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And also I don't really know much about the character Blue Beetle. So it did feel fresh to me. Like, Oh, like I wasn't, I didn't have expectations of like, oh, this guy better do Clark Kent right or better do Peter Parker right. It's like I don't really know who like Amy Ryan is. So yeah, this this worked for me. Um, yeah, I give this one like a a nice uh, B plus. It was pretty good. Did you get any like Miss Marvel vibes in the way that it's like kind of about family in addition to the superhero genre? Because that's kind of what stood out about that. That's yeah, what, was the way that it focused on a, a different culture than ours. And right. And was, you know, kind of about navigating family along with the superhero uh, persona. I mean, how does it compare to that show? Is there any comparisons or is it just different? Oh, my God, you're blowing my mind. I didn't realize. I mean, I I saw Miss Marvel. I liked I reviewed it. I liked Miss Marvel a lot. Like of all the Marvel, like, you know, TV series they did like the last couple of years, like that was one of the few superhero ones I actually liked. And I didn't realize until this moment that Blue Beetle is basically Miss Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Yep, you're right. Uh, wow, okay, good insight. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot like Miss Marvel in that sense. Uh, and, and and they were both good. 
They were both good. Yeah. Yeah, Miss Marvel had that, like, it feels like I'm watching an early 2000s superhero movie feel, too. Just like they had basic stru- plot, plot structure and, like, Heroes Journey. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. You're blowing my mind. Yeah. Well, Blue Beetle's uh, Miss Marvel. Go see it. It's good. <laughs> well, I've been slacking big time on the, the DC Extended Universe. I'm looking at it now. I haven't oh, seen the last Oh, one. haven't we all? Well, you've seen them, though. Like, I haven't seen Black Adam, the new Shazam, the Flash, or Blue Beetle. And those are the I last haven't ones. seen any of those movies. Oh, I did watch the Flash, but only just just for you. Because so I have seen I did the last two. That's two more. No, I haven't seen Shazam. I haven't seen Black Adam. I haven't seen... Well, Flash haven't and seen Blue Beetle are the last two, though. So you you are... You have seen those. You saw the Oh, trailer. yeah, that's true. Um, well... So- I really, I, I, I was personally interested in Blue Beetles because I was looking for something to be able to review for you because we were like, what should we review? Mike, you haven't watched enough. So I was like, oh, well, this one's streaming. I'll watch this. And I like that kid. I really like uh, Cobra Kai and the main kid in that, uh, which, yeah, Zolo, I think is his name. Mike, uh, he's, I promise he's you, I would never accuse you of not watching enough. That would not. You guys, happen. he is <laughs> so mean to me. You should see the private text messages. Mike, you're not watching enough. Uh, why haven't you watched 40 films this week? Uh, no, no. I did have that issue with uh, some of our other podcast hosts. With he who will not be named, Voldemort, as I like to call him now. Uh, he's not Voldemort. <laughs> you're literally still friends with him, and you t- like you you went on a trip to whatever. I talk There's to no... him every day. That, I talk yeah. to him every day. That's why I can call him Voldemort. <laughs> it's, fine. it's fine. He doesn't listen uh, to this anymore anyway, so whatever. <laughs> um, I mean, he who does, but that's fine. <laughs> we do. We can't, we we can't fault him for that. We listen to each other. My mom, maybe. That's true. You know, my, I, mom, my wife. Yeah. Your girlfriend. That's, you know, that's true. Catherine we listens. Supporters. We have supporters. Hi, we everyone. Do. We love you. We love you. We do love you. All seven of you listening. Uh, we're, 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 we're developing a uh, merchandise line so let us know in the comments uh, what you'd like to see on a second day t-shirt, sticker, we have mouse coffee pads mug and stickers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'll gonna... do it I think that's good for today Mike let's save Napoleon until we both watch it how about that uh... Uh, I wish someone had saved Napoleon, I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, that gives you a little hint uh, to Mike's thoughts on it. But I have not seen it yet. Um, and we've covered a lot here today. So I think, that, I think that we can save that one. I, I want to do that one when we've both seen it. Uh, let me know when you've seen Killers of the Flower Moon. I'd love to hear your brief thoughts yeah, uh, on the next pod. But I, I think that's good for a show. What do you think? Uh, are you going to watch the Harry Potter documentary one? Oh, yeah, I mean, I kind of would like to. Okay. If you want to talk about it real quick. No, no, no. Let's, let's save it. Watch it, and then we can both talk about it together. All right, well, say the name in case anyone else is curious. What is it? David Holmes, The Boy Who Lived. It's on saw HBO. It. Yeah, I saw it. I loved it. Catherine and I, like, we we, we, we we spent such a long time talking about it afterwards. You know how you watch something, and you, like, you maybe talk for five minutes about You kind of review it with the person you watch it with. Like, oh, yeah, I liked the acting. Or, yeah, I didn't like that. Oh, I like that. That one scene was cool. And then, like, really after five to ten minutes, you're kind of done talking about the movie. We talked about this movie for, like, an hour at least. And we talked about all the things that it made us think about, our, our value systems about disability and, you know, the healthcare system. Like, it was – we we had such a good conversation from this movie, which is in some ways – a testament to a good piece of art and a good movie when you watch it. Um, so yeah, we let's review it together. I call those films or I call those drive home discussions because yeah, everybody yeah. does it when you leave the theater. 
you look at each other, you say, well, what'd you think? What'd you think? And then you talk about a few things. So that's yeah. what I always call those, the drive home discussion. Uh, yeah. But we will, we, we will get into that more. I think the next pod, we'll get into Napoleon. Uh, we'll get into some of these other movies that are coming out. Uh, but I think that'll do it for today's episode. So uh, we will get out of here. Mike, thanks for being here. Uh, hope you have a, a good holidays. I don't know if we'll get back on here before Christmas. Maybe, maybe not. If not, we will see you uh, later, but uh, that's going to do it. So for Mike Nichols, I'm Brandon Champion. Thank you once again for listening to the Second Day Film Podcast. We'll talk to you next time and we'll see you at the movies.